Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Spike Cohen with me today. He's the founder and chair of You Are the Power. He's a successful business owner, libertarian activist, and he's a media figure. And I think many of you know him as the guy who ran as the Libertarian Party's VP candidate in 2020. And since, he's become a regular guest on cable news shows nationally. And he's just really great at spreading the message of liberty in all kinds of venues. I mean, Spike, I think I've seen YouTube videos of you on almost all of the channels that I never watch other than when I'm watching them on YouTube and there's important clips. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to talk today about spreading the message of liberty in a post-pandemic world. Spike, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. I'm happy to be on, man. And I'm happy that I'm filling your feed with videos that you'll never watch. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not what I meant. I meant the shows I don't watch. Like on MSNBC, I don't watch MSNBC. That's fine. That's That's what I meant. (laughs) I'm watching you on those shows. Uh, That's it. But just (laughs) me. Other the only part that matter, just yeah. the distilled spike in them. Yeah, and that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about you first, and then we'll sure. get into some uh, spreading message of liberty ideas. How did you get into libertarianism? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I got in the way that most, I guess, men my age did, which is as a recovering neocon. I was one of those, I was 19 when 9-11 happened, didn't have much of a political perspective. Actually, my politics was kind of libertarian. If I didn't know the word, I just didn't think the government really had any business doing much of anything. Then 9-11 happened. As a kid, I fully bought into the the government and corporate media narrative that these evil Sauron-like figures wanted to destroy us because of how darn free we are and that we had to spread our peaceful democratic ways by overthrowing their governments and murdering as many people as possible. It sounds weird saying it now, but I believed it. Every bit as strongly as I believe in liberty now, I believed in that Mm. then. And it took these really annoying people like Matt Kibbe and Ron Paul and and many others who would say, if you want a smaller government, you can't support imperialism abroad and and a surveillance state domestically. And I'd say, oh, you guys just support the terrorists or whatever. And over the years, I realized they were right. Every prediction they made was proven correct. Mid-2000s, I started thinking, well, maybe I'm clearly wrong here. So let me, before I go and ad hoc accept another idea that might be wrong, let me actually look philosophically at what I believe. And I did a lot Mm. of reading on all sorts of mostly anti-authoritarian stuff, but really across the whole political spectrum and settled on sort of the anarcho-capitalist libertarianism. That took a couple of years, but that's where I am now. What got me into the liberty movement was after I was diagnosed with MS in 2016, it kind of made me realize just how finite our time here is. And it made me kind of refocus what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I I retired from my companies and got full-time into liberty activism. And long story short, I came in third for vice president uh, a couple of years ago. That's pretty cool, man. That's a great journey. You know what's great about Ron Paul and Matt Kibbe is that it would not be an insult for them to hear you say they were annoying you with those messages. I've told them both. I've literally... And it's it's funny now because Matt's... I've met Dr. Paul and had some great conversations with him. Matt's like a friend now on like a first name basis. And He's probably the single most influential person of my hating 
libertarians during that time, he was the main figure of like, I can't believe it. Why do I keep getting emails from him? And mm. this was pre-social media. And now to tell him, I'm like, listen, if you're happy I'm here, it's because of you. And if you're upset that I'm here, that it's all your fault. But I've told them both. I was like, yeah. I was very upset. I thought you were both traitors to our country. Why did you want the terrorists to win? And they both were very amused by it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you were recently on a podcast with Jacob Winograd, the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy podcast, yes. or at least I yeah. heard you recently. I think it was sometime this year. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about your personal journey of where you are in terms of faith. So yeah. you have a relationship with Christianity and mm -hmm. you could go in a little bit with that. But I wanted to ask you, was there any connection for you between those beliefs and libertarianism? Absolutely. So for those who don't know, I was raised in the Messianic Jewish faith which is basically Jews who believe that we're no longer waiting for Messiah. Christ was Messiah, is the long story short. I guess an even shorter way of saying it is we worship Christ the way the original Christians did. The original, the apostles and the original Christians were mostly just Jews who believed that this was Messiah. That's what Messianic Judaism is. Over the years, I have become less, I don't really believe in the Abrahamic faiths anymore, in that interpretation of God. But I also, after kind of becoming a default agnostic atheist for a while. But it always hit me that there has to be a purpose to this. It makes zero sense whatsoever, the idea that there is this meaningless universe that happened for no particular reason, which just seemed to, for some reason, create out of it this species of humans who are constantly seeking fulfillment and purpose and care about everything and are hyper-emotional and everything matters, that doesn't make any sense that that would be the case. I've kind of settled on the idea that I may one day be enlightened to what the truth is, but I've kind of settled on the idea that in the same way that the bacteria that make up our gut microbiome have neither the cognitive nor perceptive nor articulable ability to understand or explain what the bigger thing that they're a part of, I suspect that we're in a similar situation, that try as we might, hmm. we just don't have the sensory or the cognitive ability to even understand what this is all about. And that's kind of a piece I've made with that. Certainly open to enlightenment in the future if there is such a thing. But going back to how my Christian faith helped with libertarianism, I was very much a no king but Christ anarchist libertarian. Once I realized the folly of neoliberalism and neoconservatism and the folly of statism in general, it really took me back to the story in the Bible of how the Israelites cried out for a king. Here they had the creator of the universe providing all their needs, giving them a system of a sort of voluntary governance based on the covenant he had created with them. And they looked around and said, yeah, but all these other people got kings and look at all the prestige they have and look at everything they have. And God warned them and said, you know, here are literally listed out. Here are all the things that will happen to you and those who come after you if you choose the king. And they went, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We want a king. So he gave him a king and all the things that he warned them about. And that really like reading that and then also reading Romans 13 which many statists use as an excuse why we should just allow government to do anything and be fine with it. It's actually the opposite. Keep in mind, Paul was in prison when he wrote this, and he had to be very careful with how he was writing things. But if you read between the lines, he's saying we need to respect the godly authority. And then he lays out point by point what godly authority is. Well, line up what he's describing as godly authority that we must submit to with what the government's doing. 
it's nearly a mirror opposite of what the government does. What I take from that is that anything that falls short of that, we should not be submitting to and we should be not complying with. So no, that was very much, I was very much still a Messianic Jew when I came into this belief in terms of governance and things like that. That was a major bedrock of my journey into that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we have, I don't know if you, you can't read my hat, but a lot of people have seen me wear it. And I had it on at Free Defense. It's Jesus is Lord and it's got Caesar crossed out. And <laughs> yes, the implication there is that a lot of times when we say Jesus is Lord and it's a personal reflection of who we, you know, our relationship with God, right? And you yes. know, we're pledging allegiance to Jesus. And people don't realize that is literally in the first century was supposed to always include, yeah, but that means Caesar isn't. Like this is the only Lord. This isn't like, hey, I'm going to have Caesar yep. and Jesus and the render unto both. That wasn't how that statement's supposed to work. We're not allowed to. And so, we're literally not yeah, allowed right. to have other lords or gods before him. That's the whole point of it, right? And that was exactly the, <laughs> that was, it was funny because I would always hear, you know, people that didn't believe in government, that they were these godless, whatever. And the more I read it, I'm like, actually, this lines up per, and even as someone now who it no longer connects yeah. with the Abrahamic faiths, I still believe that. If I believed in the Abrahamic face, I would still 100% line up with what I believe in terms of governance. Like Jesus, yeah. whether you believe that he was truly Messiah or not, he was sitting there laying down a very clear message, which is why the ruling structures didn't like him, was because he was saying, this is all garbage. We're supposed to follow yeah. God. That's it. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, you know, if Jesus was also carried on the prophetic tradition... The other aspect of this for me was that, in, you know, you read the Old Testament, you have this prophetic voice against empire, you have these prophets speaking yep. out against empire, you have the book of Isaiah explaining how your silver has become dross, and there's all this stuff <laughs> that is speaking or preaching truth to power, right? So we have that element. And I have a, I want to get your take on this. And the left, at least when you and I were becoming libertarians, because I think our timelines are very, very similar, given what you just said at least during that time, the social justice left before it became the whole full woke stuff, yeah. seemed to at least somewhat be prophetic against empire, especially during the George Bush yes. years. Now, you and I, at the early years, we may not have appreciated that very much. We the anti-war <laughs> era. You're right. Yes. But now I look back and I'm like, man, I wish you guys were around during the Obama years. Yes. That would have been nice. But in any case, I want to get your take on what parts of maybe the left and even maybe the right that carry on the sort of prophetic tradition against empire? I think for a lot of leftists and those on the right, there's not a whole lot of that happening anymore. And it seems like that they've become sort of one unit, especially when it comes to war. I mean, I've never seen Democrats rally behind Liz Cheney like they have lately. Now, I realize <laughs> why it's not necessarily about war, but like, come on, people. Anyway, I just want to get your take on that. Yeah. So this brings me to a story of uh, something I was experiencing a couple of weeks ago. I spoke at the Free Julian Assange rally at the steps of the Department of Justice in DC, what, two, three weeks ago now? And I was there. I was one of the few libertarians or right-wingers or anything. It was about a thousand or more people there. And they were almost, I would say at least 85, 90% leftists communist, socialist, Green Party. One of the other speakers was Jill Stein. Across the left spectrum from like Bernie bro Democrats all the way to like hardcore black flag anarchists and communists. And it was the most refreshing thing to sit there and hear them give their leftist standpoint of being against war and against empire and cheering 60, 70% of what they were saying on. I did find it funny when a Jill Stein said that 
if Julian Assange is not freed. The polar ice caps were melt, but hey, whatever it takes. Um, oh my but gosh. The, uh, <laughs> but you know what? Listen, if that's what it gets people to get on board, then so I'll start saying it too. Oof. But what was very good to see and it like filled my heart was remembering that there was this robust anti-war, anti-empire, anti-corporatist left that seemed to have disappeared just a few years ago, or at least not been mainstream anymore. And I think the point, at least in our lifetimes, when both the elements of the left and elements of the right were really getting it was in the aftermath of the Wall Street and real estate crashes of 2007, 2008, the TARP bailouts. And you had this Occupy Wall Street movement who was fighting against the big business influence in government and the huge bailouts they just got. And the Tea Party movement, which was kind of fighting the same thing, but from the big government side. And it seemed like you could just with a couple little modifications, get them to unify enough to maybe get some actual things done, like we saw happen in some other, especially in some European countries. And then we saw a masterful move by the big corporations and by government, which is this sort of clownish rainbowization and black and brown faceization of their fascist imperialist empire mm. that they have. And so you now have a lot of people on the left who are, instead of decrying the fact that JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and all these major corporations, the central bankers are ruining the economic system for their benefit and the military industrial complex is robbing us blind in order to murder people overseas and justify their jingoism. And instead, they're like really happy because they've appointed a trans woman of color as their spokesperson or they've put a rainbow flag on their profile picture or they've given some statement about Indigenous Peoples Day or some other nonsense. And that's enough for them. And then the right gets mad at them. So instead of, largely speaking, instead of the right saying, yeah. no, this is fascism and still imperialism, they go, no, they should be using the American flag instead. And, it's, and so they successfully, through this like really, in my view, cynical and easy to see through veneer of messaging, of, of virtue signaling, have successfully gotten most of the left and most of the right to argue with each other while demanding that the government grow so that they can each punish each other. And in a grand show of bipartisanship, the government says, fantastic, we promise to grow and punish both of you. And that's what we have mm. right now. And to your question of when are the left and the right at their best, it's for very brief moments of time, like the very beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, so an example of this. When George Floyd was murdered and the video came out and then more information was given about Breonna Taylor and her killing, there was, a, for a very brief moment of time, like this is like June, beginning of June, mm -hmm. or I guess beginning of July, where the hot white focus was end qualified immunity, end no-knock raids, end the war on drugs, end victimless crimes, police accountability, things that we could all get behind. I remember there was like a Newsweek poll where 54% of Americans said that burning down the police precinct in Minnesota was actually justified. This was a time when Americans were like, wow, this is really messed up. But what happened? The government and the corporate media left, glommed onto it, turned it into a fight against racism, which is a thought, not an actual policy, completely stripped it of anything having to do with structural changes that can happen to fix this and keep it from happening in the future, encouraged them to riot in the streets, had the thin blue line stand down, criminalized and vilified the people who actually defended themselves and their homes and their properties and businesses, yeah. and then had them fighting each other again. And so now we're back to that. Another recent example, 
is when the FBI raided Donald Trump's home. And even though that's not necessarily the best reason to get upset, a lot of people got upset on the right. And they started saying we should be abolishing the, the FBI and whatever. And very quickly, it turned into, no, we need to take over the government and use the FBI to go after them like <laughs> they came after us. Now you see the NatCon, the National Conservative yeah. movement. And it, the trend I hear is that it's in the beginning of these stages. Just and in we the have beginning. To capture. Just yeah, in yeah. the beginning until yeah. government and corporate media can get their hooks back in and say, no, 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 no. No, we don't need to destroy the ring of power. You just want to be the one holding it. And meanwhile, neither one of yeah, them is holding yeah. it. The same group of cynical ruling class people who transcend politics because it's just a handful of them robbing and screwing the rest of us blind. That's the real system. Yeah. I could tell you're really passionate about this. And it's something that everybody's going to get passionate about something, right? And you're going to be the kind of person who's like up on all the things that are happening. If I were to ask you about just about any topic, you probably have something intelligent to respond with. More than likely. Yeah. More, more than likely. I mean, it's what you're doing, right? So not everybody has that. But if you weren't paying attention right. to literally everything, like what are the ones that you would choose to pay attention to if you didn't have to? Like what are the ones that are important to you? That's one of the toughest questions, right? Because I'm <laughs> following everything, I see not just how important each thing is, but how interconnected they all are. The one thing I fall back on is the Federal Reserve. And not just the Federal Reserve, which is really just a symptom of government controlling what is or is not currency, which is actually in our constitution. Like there are problems with the Federal Reserve, yeah. but replacing it with a government-run central bank would probably be even worse or certainly wouldn't be any an improvement. When the government has the ability to control what money is and is actually in charge of printing it out, they control everything. It's what allows them to have their endless wars and their endless prisons and their endless victimization of innocent people here and abroad and their endless surveillance against us because they yeah. don't actually have to come to us and convince us to give them money to pay for all this stuff either through coercion or persuasion. They can just print out money, lend it to themselves, stick us with some of the interest for it, and yeah. devalue our currency so we become more reliant on them. Like, it's a scam. And every single issue, whether we're talking about police brutality or the wars or immigration or the job market or the economy in general, certainly inflation, any of these issues, yeah. if you boil it down, the core problem, corporatism, money and politics, all of that, if you boil it down, it comes down to the fact that the government controls what money is. It is a game of monopoly where all of the players have to play by the rules, except this one player who can go to the banker and say, give me a trillion billion monopoly notes and stick them all with the bill for it. And yeah. until you fix that, everything else is putting band-aids on blistering sores that are being caused by a systemic cancer throughout the body. Yeah. Well, we've said this on our show when we've had these like Q&As and Norman Horn, the founder of LCI, and I get on and talk about it. They've, they've asked us, what order would you dismantle the state? And Fed is always number one. And as we get to number two, which is bring the troops home, we're like, well, wait a second. If you do number one, they're probably going to have to bring the troops home anyway. Or and then number three, they're yep. probably not going to be able to implement anyway. And number four, like the Fed, it really... That whole control the money system, I've tried to tell my leftist friends who are Christians, if the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, what on earth do you think the power to print and control money is? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, and, it's, it's greed 
it's greed as yeah. a system, right? It's not yeah. incentivized yep. greed through a market-based, you know, well, you, you know, it's quid pro quo, you scratch yeah. my back, I scratch yours, you provide me a product, I give you money type of thing. It's greed where they don't even have any negative feedback. It's literally just, yeah. I control everything. There's nothing you can do about it. I bankroll everything. If I were a leftist, I can't imagine that I would hate that system any less than I do now. Like that can be our unifying factor between a, people across the political spectrum. Absolutely. Is the ultra powerful shouldn't control what money is. That should be yeah. something decided by people in the market, even if it means multiple yeah. currencies. Well, I mean, that's why Peter Schiff went out and did the whole, uh, when the Occupy Wall Street, he went out and talked to people and was like, like, yeah, I'm in the 1%, but I agree with you about all this power. And yeah, where are yeah. the critical race theorists talking about structural racism with the Fed? Thank you. Like, here's the thing. When someone says, do you believe in systemic racism as a libertarian? Because, you know, this idea that racism is something to be systemic. I'm like, yeah, Federal Reserve. Like, that's one example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just seems blindingly obvious to me that they just don't really care about the actual issues that deal with racism and they kind of pick and choose what things. I mean, what about the public education system? I mean, that was created by whites, right? Like, you could go down this whole road of like, if you really believe what you believe, you're going to attack certain things. And most of those things come back to the ones that libertarians are harping about. Yeah. Licensing schemes, gun control, minimum wage, forced unionization, all of that was yep. initially started to yep. keep black people from succeeding. And the idea behind systemic racism, whether you agree with it or not, the idea behind systemic racism is that when a system is created explicitly to do a thing, a hundred years later, if that exact system still exists, even if the people who are running that exact system are no longer doing it for the original reasons, it still tends to have the same effect on the people yeah. that it was originally yeah. intended to target. Now, whether you agree with that or not, when you look at gun control, it wildly disproportionately affects people of color, even more so than the war on drugs, which also disproportionately affects them. If you look at minimum wage laws, they disproportionately affect joblessness among people of color and poor people in general. If you look at any of those things, they disproportionately, so whether you believe in systemic racism yeah. or not, these things are causing real harm to these specific populations, even more so than everyone else, and were originally designed to do so. Call it whatever you want, it's that. And again, the head of that at the very top of it, what allows it to happen is the Federal Reserve and the government and ruling class being able to decide what currency is. So yeah, if I had to pick one issue, that would be it. Well, I think we're pretty well aligned on these things. <laughs> That's really great. I mean, it's really important to get that message out there and to kind of talk about the things that are important to us. Yep. One question, just a slightly different topic at this point, is how big is your libertarian umbrella? You know, there's a lot of types of libertarians out there. If it were a big church, there'd be lots of denominations, lots of splinter groups and factions and different sects. And some are crazy and some are not, I'm sure. But yes. how big is your umbrella? When you say my umbrella, do you how mean... Big, or, or your tent, I should say. How big is your tent for libertarians? Yeah. Is there like... So when you say my tent, do you mean the people that I'm working with or... Yeah, you could answer it that way. The thing I'm thinking of is like, at what point does someone like, yeah, you're not really a libertarian. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, as a super Saiyan libertarian who has reached final form and has nothing left to learn for the rest of my life, and I, I look forward to you all joining me there one day, as someone who has reached that final moment of, I guess, convergence, the singularity of all knowledge, as that one person who's done that, I will say that libertarianism as a belief system, like all other belief systems, is in some kind of a spectrum. And it's also a subjective one, right? Because 
for someone who is, for example, a constitutionalist or a minarchist, which I think solidly falls within the ideas of libertarianism, they might believe that my being an anarcho-capitalist kind of falls just outside or, or just within, but barely within the bounds because my idea would lead to uh, the warlords taking over or whatever they believe. So even that is subjective. But even within my subjective spectrum of what I think is or is not libertarian, it's pretty wide. And the further out you go, the less libertarian you are. So for example, I think that I'm allied with constitutionalists, with minarchists, even with some left libertarians. I am allied, obviously, with anyone within the ANCAP spectrum. I'm also increasingly, with the work I'm doing with You Are the Power, which we can talk about yeah. a bit if you want to, I'm working with everyone, even if they agree with me on one issue, even if I don't consider them remotely libertarian. If we agree on this issue, A, let's work together on this issue. Worst case scenario, I just leveraged one of my political opponents to accomplish a goal we agree on and start a conversation where they at least realize I'm not some caricature and that they might agree with me on other stuff. And best case scenario, I just open a conversation with someone that we can actually bring them further into liberty. And, and the, the way I say it is the more you can bring someone into your orbit, the more you can affect them with your gravity, the more that they hear your ideas and the more they see the consistency of libertarianism, the more they go, wow, that makes sense. But again, even if they don't, I at least accomplished a goal with them. I'm happy to work next week. I'm going to be in Columbus, Ohio, working with Republicans and Democrats on criminal justice reform in Ohio. Excellent. If we can accomplish those goals, fantastic. And if the rest of the time I've got the Democrats fighting with me against my ideas on healthcare and guns, and I got people on the right fighting against my ideas on the drug war or, or police accountability, fine. I'm fine with yeah. just working with them on that. So I would say my tent grows bigger by the day if that tent includes people I'm willing to work with on just on single yeah. issues we agree with. Well, and it, your answer reflects the fact that for you, this is very much an action-oriented belief system, if you want to call it even a belief system. Yes. That it's not about necessarily the dogmas that you hold, but like, how can I move the ball forward, you know, in terms of more freedom yes. for people, less oppression. And if that means you're partnering with a Democrat in the state of Ohio and a Republican, and those people are arch enemies, yeah. you're bringing them in. I loved your gravity, you know, the gravity metaphor. That was great. Like the more you bring into your orbit, you know, they're going to be attracted by your gravity. That's excellent. They're closer to it. Yeah. The key is to do it slowly enough where they don't crash into you and you both die. But <laughs> if you can, if, if you ease them in, then you should be good. Yeah, uh, that's good. What's the state of the messaging of libertarianism before, during, and after the pandemic for you? How have you seen that evolve and change oh, maybe even in your own way? So I would say that two things have happened during that time, besides the pandemic itself. Number one, within the Libertarian Party, there's been a massive factional shift away from the more, I guess, quote-unquote, pragmatic way of trying to present libertarianism towards the more, for lack of a better word, radical way of presenting it. So that has happened. I think that probably would have happened even without COVID, that the trend was there. I think it accelerated okay. it, though. Because the second thing that happened is we now have in the general public, a public that is increasingly angry at the status quo. Even if they're still voting Democrat, Republican, whatever, they're increasingly doing so as this hold your nose. I don't agree with any of these people. These people seem slightly less horrible than these people, but they hate the status quo. Even if they only blame one half of the ruling class for the status quo and believe that they can only be saved by the other half of the ruling class, <laughs> they at least understand that the status quo is fundamentally 
not serving them, whether it's broken or working as intended, it's not serving yeah. them. And so I think in terms of messaging, we have a, and I'm hoping that this is the best way to answer your question, because the short answer is, I mean, I'm not good at short answers, but the short answer is, it really depends on issue to issue, person to person. Like there's a lot of messaging happening and some of it's great, some of it's terrible, but I would say that to whatever extent we are making connections with people on issues they care about and resisting our often neurodivergent urge to make it about ideas and leaving out any kind of emotion or leaving out personal stories and just focusing on the raw numbers, the more we walk away from that and towards starting with something that's going to connect with people and no emotionally drawing them in and then having yeah. a conversation about how this happened what allowed this to happen and how we could fix it and make it never happen again or make more of it happen if it's a good thing or whatever. The more we do that, the better we are. I think that largely speaking, the pragmatic and radical camps have often given us not just our own duopoly, which does nothing to serve us, but also has given us this kind of false dichotomy or false binary choice. Pragmatic saying that you have to be relatable almost to the point of being watered mm. down. And our ideas are scary or could be seen as scary, so we need to kind of back off of them. Or the idea that you have to just be bold to the point of, if it offends people, well, that was their fault. They weren't ready. They're a bunch of snowflakes. And the reality <laughs> is those are both bad ideas for their own special reasons. Being milk toast isn't relatable. People don't like milk toast. They might like you at first because you seem like a nice person, but once you're just kind of presenting yourself as 20% marginally better than the alternatives and have very little chance of winning, you just told them why they shouldn't support you or vote mm. for you, right? right. Like you just yeah. you seem like a nice guy. You've now been put in the friend zone. If you go into the bold but not relatable way of doing things and, and alienating people, well, that has the opposite effect. They don't see it as bold. They just see you as a jerk. And whatever ideas you might have been able to share with them, you've already completely helped put up their cognitive defenses so that not only will they not like what you have to say, they don't like you mm. and anything associated with you or your brand, they're going to hate forever. You, congratulations, you've just won an internet argument and made a mortal enemy for you and everything you care about for the rest of their lives until someone else comes in and tries to heal that damage. My idea is this. Yes, we should be bold. We should be unapologetic. We should never hide our ideas because frankly, that looks suspect. But we need to recognize that most people need to have an emotional connection to something before they accept it. And COVID presented that opportunity. I'm not going to get into, and I've talked about this before on other shows, I'm not going to get into the struggles I had with the campaign in 2020, trying to say how much we needed to lean yeah. into the damage that the COVID regime was doing and the real harm it was doing to people and that we needed to... I'm not going to get into all that. But... To whatever extent we are using, are talking about the COVID regime or about any of these other things, you know, war, the threat of war, inflation, that's a huge mm. one right now. The coming recession, it's already begun, but the coming major recession we're about to crumble into, not from a starting on the numbers standpoint or starting on the facts standpoint, but starting on the making emotional connections, telling stories of people who, real people who have had real harm done to them, and then presenting our very real solutions for those things. I think that's the way forward. It's what I'm doing with You Are the Power. It's what I'm doing with my general messaging. It works. Yeah. Well, I want I do want to talk about You Are the Power as an organization. We've been talking a little bit about like online how do you present things? Yeah. There's going to be a libertarian out there who's going to tweet something that's embarrassing. 
How would you tell someone, don't be that embarrassing libertarian tweeting out or putting out annoying, embarrassing stuff on social media? Because you've done very, very well at your messaging. And that's why I want to ask you. So what I would tell that person is you and I both know that nothing you ever say or tweet or do, it's all going to pale in comparison to the very real harm being done by the ruling class and by the status. So when you put this out, if you put this out, and the reaction you get, you will often respond saying, oh, why are you mad at me and not the people that did this thing who I'm lashing out against? And I understand that because you're simply in your way explaining what is happening. Yeah. The reason that the ruling class gets to get away with mass murder and the biggest prison population in human history and victimizing innocent people who've committed no real crime against anyone else, harm no one else, endless surveillance, the inflation, all of those things. The reason they get away with that is because they have figured out how to do what we were just talking about, humanizing themselves and presenting themselves as these caring mm. figures who are just like me and you. And you know, you're the kind of person you have a beer with. How many times do they talk about how often you'd like to have a beer with Biden or Trump or Obama? These are mass murderers, but they talk about having a beer with them. They have successfully convinced deluded people into thinking that they're not the sociopathic monsters that they are. When you present messaging that allows you to look like almost the bad guy or the cruel person or the antagonist, what you're actually doing, all the facts you may be presenting, what you're actually doing is helping that narrative of Mm. humanizing them as the sympathetic protagonist and you're the bad guy. You're the just the person that's against everything. You're the person who's just so filled with anger and hatred. Why would I believe that your ideas make sense and will you know help me and my family if you're being so rude about it? And as stupid as that sounds, that's how people connect with it. Yeah. So to whatever extent, you can play the same game they're playing, but for the right reasons. Get in emotionally on something that they care about and then have that broader discussion and don't fall into the trap as tempting as it is, and I've done it, I'm sure sure Doug's done it, we've all done it at some point, falling into the trap of helping their narrative of humanizing them. To whatever extent you can avoid that and instead focus on presenting how this is actually hurting people and how our solutions can solve these problems and keep them from happening, you'll be killing their narrative and helping ours. So let's talk about you are the power. What can we do offline? Which is that, that seems to me like the out in the real world. You know, you and, probably spend enough time on conversations like this. And for people who work from home like me, and this is kind of our thing, we have to realize that this isn't the real world. I mean, it is. It's part of the world. But there are real lives hurting out there. There are real people who are affected by actual everyday things. George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, and all the people involved in that. And there are lots of things that are really important. And you are very much trying to empower other people to be active in ways that are actually effective rather than, you know, simply voting. I mean, clearly you're not against voting, so you're not one of those libertarians, but you're very much... No, I'm not against it. But you're also very much about being active. So tell us about You Are the Power and, and we can go from there. Sure. So You Are the Power is an answer to what I saw as opportunities that had uh, quite a few challenges and and obstacles in front of them. The opportunity is, like I said before, a high and growing record number of people are inherently, intuitively 
done with the status quo. But mm. they don't know that there's a viable alternative or they don't think that the alternatives could actually work. But the real challenges are not that. The real challenge is that we haven't had a direction in the liberty movement of how to actually get our ideas out there. We've tried messaging through podcasting and through interviews and all of that stuff. That's helpful, but it's not it. We've tried the electoral path for like 50 years now. And we've had some successes. We've got a few hundred people elected at the local level, few state legislators, but that's not it alone. None of these things are it alone. And what happens is right now, there are people that are really hurting right now. And often instead of helping them and using that as a way to open a conversation, we're saying, okay, we'll be able to help them once we get in positions of, of authority and power, or once we dismantle the state through agorism, or once we do <laughs> yeah, whatever right. the thing is you think we need to do. What I'm saying is, someone's hurting right now. No one's helping them. They don't know how to help themselves. We know what needs to be done. And we are really good at organizing when we actually have something to organize around. We've proven that time and time again. Or they do know how to help themselves and they're not allowed to. Or they do know how to help themselves. They don't know how to get yeah. out of the trap yeah, yeah. that they've been put into. They know how to do it if they weren't in the trap. So what we do with You Are the Power is we identify causes. We identify issues where people are being run roughshod over by their local government, sometimes by their state government. We begin to organize our membership. We have over 2,000 members. We have members in 50 states already. We begin to organize our membership online to kind of swarm around the local social media, to swarm their phone lines, to swarm their email addresses of the local government, sheriff's department, zoning board, yeah. school board, whoever's involved in this, whatever this thing is. Get local media involved by drawing all this attention to it, nationwide, international attention to it. And then from that, we use that to organize the locals, including our local membership, to actually do in-person events to help draw attention to the cause we usually have them happen right before the next meeting of whatever the government is that we're targeting in this situation, the city council, the mm -hmm. school board, zoning board, whatever. And then we invite all of the community members that are there to, you know, to call for justice for whatever this cause is to join us in that meeting and to give a piece of their mind to the people there. And having the effect of having tens of thousands of people ratioing them on their social media and hundreds or thousands of people hitting them up on their phone lines and their email inboxes, and then dozens or even a hundred or more people yeah. showing up to their city council meetings. It's usually enough to make them fold. And if they don't fold, then we've created both a base of support and a winning issue for local candidates to run on to unseat them. But more importantly, it's great that we have helped that person, we've gotten justice for them, or we've used it as a launch pad to get people in there who will get them justice. But more importantly, long-term, that's the most important thing, short-term, more importantly, long-term, we use that we build a network effect around that, bring people into this cause, and then use it as an opening conversation about the fact that the reason this even happened is because there's a system, a centrally planned system where too few people have too much power and have no respect mm. for the autonomy or the rights of the people under their presumed jurisdiction. So it's an opening conversation. We get people who very often aren't even politically involved. We get them excited. We get them organized and activated. And then we give them the papers yeah. on, here's why this even happened in the first place. And here's how we can fight even harder to stop it from happening. That's How, what how involved have uh, you been with any churches on those local levels or leaders in those churches? Or, I mean, do you have any idea of how involved some local churches are in what you're doing? Well, I can tell you, in Gastonia, North Carolina, one of the biggest people that's been working with us is a guy by the name of Pastor Moses Colbert, who is a part of a an alliance of I think twenty eight different churches in that in Gaston County, and he's one of the main people showing up at every single 
month or every other, because we pick the third Tuesday, but every other city council, every time we have an event at a city council Mm. meeting, he's one of the main people there, often one of the people that speaks to the city council. And we did this very much from the standpoint, because part of that cause is the fact that that city council shut down his homeless shelter, which was the only homeless shelter in Gastonia. There were some other parts to it as well, a homeless veteran who got who got assaulted and wrongfully arrested and, and some other stuff as well. But on his part of that, they were literally shutting down a, a church's mission to help the homeless. And in doing so, they sent him a letter saying he wasn't complying with zoning because he wasn't zoned to be a homeless shelter. They don't have zoning for a homeless <laughs> shelter, which is why there aren't any. And then they said, you are a church and you need to only stick to church duties. Well, Former Christian here, (laughs) I recall that one of the main duties of the church is to help the poor. Wow. So you can imagine that the Christian community in Gastonia took great offense to that. So no, we are very happily, and there are many times that the Christian communities in the areas that we're working in intuitively understand the harm that's being done, in some cases, directly to their faith and their mission. Yeah, no, that's, wow. As they say in the South, them's fighting words <laughs> in a different way, right? Like, that's just like, wait, yeah. are you kidding me? That that yes. seems to me yep. that it would rally a lot of, it galvanize a lot of support around something so really offensive, Very to much. be honest. I mean, it's like, you, you need to just do, what do you want, just Sunday service, yes. that's it? Like, what do you, what do you have in mind that you don't think we're supposed to be doing? And it, insult and injury, because in the time since Pastor Moses's homeless shelter shut down, Dozens of homeless people have died mostly mm. from either exposure or from drug overdoses that many of them were able to, yeah, these are people living on the streets in the cold. And then, you know, when it gets in summertime in the heat, they were previously being housed every night. They might've been on the street during the day, but they were at least had a place to sleep. That was, you know, a warm place to sleep at night or a cool place to sleep at night and enough food to get by. And anyone who has dealt with homelessness addiction or both can tell you when your situation suddenly gets really bad, it can be very easy to fall into drugs or back into drugs and addiction. Mm. And so we've seen a lot of that. So not just the insult of, oh, uh, yeah, just do what you do as a Christian, but not that part because we don't want you doing that part. And then the actual injury of the people dying in many cases as a direct result of that. And here's the most absurd part of this, the most cynical part of all this. The reason we believe that they shut it down is because they were pushing for state money to solve their homeless crisis, to get millions of dollars to solve their homeless crisis. And if someone actually solved it, they wouldn't be able to get that money. But that money wouldn't have gone to anything else, right? (laughs) That's crazy, man. It's not surprising to us, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, you and I are not even surprised. It's just like, oh, of course that's why. Like, there's always that. There's always that. What would you have to say to Christians who might not really be into doing politics in the, in this sort of local activism sense? What is a way that we can get people more interested in something that's local to them outside of just voting? Because a lot yeah. of, you know, right now, you and I are recording this before, about a week before the midterms. And, you know, if you don't vote, you can't complain. It's like, no, there's other ways to complain. There's other ways to be active in the world. <laughs> yeah. So why is it important to do those other things? And, and how... You know, if you have anything specific to Christians that you'd want to address, you know, can sort of speak to them. Well, I mean, if you look, the both Old and New Testament is rife with direct action, direct acts of non-compliance, direct acts of helping others. And if you're a Christian, I don't even have yeah. to tell you all of them. I mean, you know them intuitively, probably know them better than I do at this point. But that's always been the tradition, has been to go out there. It's also, I mean, 
you talk about the commission of evangelism. I've been talking about libertarian evangelism, right? For lack of a better word. Like, how do you connect with people to get the message out there? If you're calling as a Christian, your main reason for existence is to do whatever you can to effectively save the eternal souls of yourself and everyone around you to whatever extent you can, what better way to evangelize than to meet people where they are on a way that they're being harmed and to help them? And then yes, to use that as an opening conversation about your faith. When someone says, why would you take so much of your time to do these types of things? And you say, because my Lord and Savior told me that those in need would be around me always. And I, I'm compelled to do these things. It is my duty on earth to do these things. And it's also my duty on earth to share the good word of Christ and his works and his gospel. What a perfect way to have that opening conversation, specifically as a Christian. What an incredible way, even if you're not a libertarian, mm. what an incredible yeah. way from just a Christian evangelism standpoint to get your message, then to connect with people where they are. Messaging works. Messaging works regardless of your evangelism, right? So if you're lowering people's cognitive defenses, you're making a rapport with them, you're demonstrating to them that you are someone who's not just leading, but serving as you lead. And when they say, why would you, you know, with everything you could be doing right now, why would you be doing that? And you say, because that's what my savior did. That's what my savior called for me to do. That's the main way to do it. And the other thing I would add to that is some people, this isn't their shtick. They're not going to get out there. They're more introverted. They're yeah. not necessarily, they don't want to get out there and be in the, in the public eye and things like that. That's perfectly understandable. There is still a place for you to help with it. Because I can tell you, whether you join You Are The Power, youarethepower.net, or if you do it through some other local thing or some libertarian thing or some Christian group or organization, whatever you do it through, they need people to help with things like maybe you're good at graphic design. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're good at maintaining CRM databases or, or contact databases. Maybe you're good at marketing or mass email. I assure you that you have some kind of skill and talent that you can give to this, right? Like every one of us has been endowed with certain talents. And if your talent isn't being one of the front-facing people that's out there, rip-roaring, ready to get the message out to folks, then maybe you've got some supportive duty that is every bit as necessary for yeah. folks like me to get out there and, and do that kind of stuff. So wherever you fit in, wherever you find fulfillment and joy in doing so, I encourage you to find it and to do it. Well, I think that's a good word, Spike. And you know, I'm really happy that you've been able to join us here. I have one more question. This was not sure. planned in my outline Although recent events on social media have sort of, you know, compelled me to ask you, how do you have a perfect relationship with your wife? <laughs> yes. So the key to a perfect relationship, well, I'll, I'll tell everyone the story behind this and then I'll tell you the real key to a perfect relationship <laughs> from my perspective. So I had someone recently ask me, and this has been asked, this is not the first time. Sure. I will have people ask me, they'll say, how is it that you and, and your wife, Tasha, have such a perfect marriage? And I'll say, well, what makes you think I have a perfect marriage? And they're like, yeah, what's your secret to that? I'm like, oh, no, but what makes you think I have a perfect marriage? And they'll say, well, you know, you're always talking about how great she is. And you're always talking about how happy you are with your marriage. And I never see you complain about, you know, any fights you guys are having or any problems with your marriage. And I say, okay, that's my secret. <laughs> and I understand a lot of folks are come from a generation I'm an elder millennial, so I, I'm the last generation that had experienced a non-online childhood. But 
I know a lot of people were raised in this idea that like everything gets posted. You put the phone up, eyes to camera, and just tell the whole world everything like you would a, a therapist or something like that. But it is true that like telling people the bad parts of your relationship are not helpful to that. Like telling everyone the bad part is not helpful yeah. unless your goal is to end the relationship, in which case carry on because that's a great way to do it. But the real secret, because that was, you know, that's me throwing someone off with a parable. The real success to my perfect marriage is that anytime I start to get upset or feel angered or betrayed or, you know, whatever, which that very, very rarely. My wife and I actually have a very sympathetic relationship. We get along very well. A big part of that is anytime I start to get upset, I remember that she looks how she looks, whereas I look sadly the way that I look. And that's a very powerful reminder. I'm joking at least a little. The real thing is anytime that I start to get upset or hurt or whatever, first of all, she's very gracious and we have some very good conversations about that kind of stuff when one of us is hurt. And second, she is the kindest and one of the most gracious and caring and loving and empathetic people. So I guess the real secret to a perfect marriage is to marry a perfect wife, which I have been able to do, thankfully. Well, I think that's a great way to end, man. <laughs> <laughs> you pitched the uh, youarethepower.net. Yes. Anywhere else people can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So I will reiterate, if you want to be a part of the grassroots movement to meet people where they are and bring them to the liberty movement, one cause at a time across the country and grow a growing nationwide network of people doing that, I invite you to come to youarethepower.net. Membership is free. We'd love to have you be a part of it. If you've got big pockets, then that's also welcome because any kind of work like a nonprofit like us is doing obviously costs money. So you can also do that there at youarethepower.net. If you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm easy to find. I'm on spikecohen.com. I'm also on all social media, pretty much all social media. I'm even on TikTok for the kids. And you can find me pretty much anywhere. If you ever lose me, the North Star is just go to the ATF's newest Facebook post and there you will find me. That's great, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 